I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Gospel of John. Our text is John chapter 21. John ends his Gospel witness with an epilogue. The conclusion came in chapter 20. Mary Magdalene, John, Peter, Thomas, all the disciples were confronted with the reality of an empty tomb and a risen Lord. They had believed and were challenged to further belief. Yet these things were not written for them, but for us. John lived his life inviting people to believe without having seen what he had seen. He ends the conclusion with the comment to Thomas, Blessed are they who did not see, yet believed. Then he stated clearly his, his motivation for writing out his gospel. John twenty thirty to 31 Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This concluding chapter emphasizes the call to belief in Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our risen Lord, the source of life. John doesn't stop there with this call to faith. He continues on with one more chapter, where chapter 20 gives more focus to the act of belief. Chapter 21 draws our attention to the journey. You have believed. Follow me. Saving faith takes you through the door and puts you on a path. In this epilogue, John offers us Peter's journey with Jesus as an example to help us think about our own journey with Jesus. Let's walk through the passage together, interpreting as we go. Here's the introduction, John 21, 1 through 3. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. The scene begins with a gathering of seven disciples. Three disciples are named. Peter has played the most consistent role throughout the gospel. As usual, John mentions himself, but indirectly, as one of the sons of Zebedee. Two others are just unnamed. This epilogue is paired with the introduction to the gospel that we had in the second half of chapter 1. There we also encountered a group of disciples, and they were just beginning to gather around Jesus. Two of John the Baptist's disciples began to follow Jesus. They gathered three more. Uh, One of the disciples remained unnamed. Peter's there. Uh, Nathaniel's there. This epilogue, when when we catch the connection back to chapter 1, draws our attention to the reality of a journey. Three years have passed since that first gathering at the beginning of the gospel. These are the same men, but they're not the same, are they? In those early days, they did proclaim Jesus Messiah, and they claimed to have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. But they hardly knew what they were talking about. They gave Jesus the titles of scripture without having experience or insight into the deeper meaning of the theology that they claimed. We discover later that these men did truly believe. That's going to come out through the story, but this is only the very beginning of that belief. Remember how Nathaniel was at first skeptical of any prophet coming from Nazareth, 
And yet when Jesus merely claimed to have seen him from afar under a fig tree, Nathanael gushed, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Jesus knew then how little Nathanael really understood. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When we first come to believe in Jesus, it's like putting on stiff new pants that are too big for us to fit into. We accept his true realities we barely understand. Our faith may be real, uh, but it's very young, very new, and we need to grow into our theological pants. In part, this simply requires time, time for growth, time for maturity. In part, it requires breaking in our pants through some hard work and some suffering and quite a bit of failure. Our pants become part of who we are, especially after having torn some holes in them. And not the fashionable kind that come prefabricated, but the kind that come after, after long wear and, and hours spent on your knees. That's when the pants are really broken in. That's when our faith becomes broken in. These men speak truths that they have yet to grow into. This Nathaniel in chapter 21 at the end, now he's seen some things. Just as Jesus said, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's seen some things. He's rejoiced. He's been afraid. He's, he's witnessed the cross. This Nathaniel is not the same as that Nathaniel who was sitting under a fig tree three years ago. He's been on a journey with Jesus. He, he has both believed and he's, he's begun to live out that belief. And you know what I'm talking about. If you have believed in, in Jesus Christ for any number of years, if you, you can think back to your original moments, the, the sweetness of, of coming to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time how, how naive you were in the beginning or how much you needed to, to grow and to learn. And that truth about Nathaniel, that he's a changed man, can be said about each one of these here. That they have all walked together, and in, in, in some sense their journey is similar, and yet they also have all walked in their own individuality with Jesus. So Peter's journey with Jesus overlaps in some sense Nathaniel's, but it was also very distinctly Peter's and his experiences and his personality and his, his um, successes and failures through this gospel that, that form and shape him in a, in a way that's different than Nathaniel. And John is taking Peter's journey. We're going to focus on Peter as an emphasis for us here as, as an example. Your journey is not going to be like Peter, but we can still learn from his journey. The disciples are at the Sea of Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. They were in Jerusalem in chapter 20, right after the resurrection, when they were in that room and Jesus appeared to them, and he let them touch the wounds in his hands. And we know they're going to be at Jerusalem again. They're going to be there for the Feast of Pentecost and when the promised Holy Spirit comes. But between those two moments in Jerusalem, right after the resurrection and at Pentecost, there's, there's going to be a period of about 40 days Acts 1-3 tells us that Jesus appeared to them over this period. And we also read in Matthew 27 that Jesus had instructed them to meet in Galilee. They are where Jesus wanted them to be. He wanted them to return to their home territory where they had conducted so much of their, their ministry together with Jesus. So these disciples have gone there, and yet apparently they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. 
And Peter, not being very good at just sitting around and waiting, does what he knows how to do. He said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. The story continues in verses 4 through 8. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. I love this part of the story. They go back to what they know. They fish all night, and they catch nothing. After that, the last thing you want is for some old guy on the beach to yell out, How's the fishing? Did you catch anything? They gave him a short, dismissive answer, no. You know, it's like they didn't say, no, shut up. No, leave us alone. It's just no. But like so many other guys who've not been out all night fishing, this guy on the beach has advice for them. And it's really stupid advice. Children, throw the net on the other side of the boat. You know, like, like the fish just hang out on, on one side of the boat. To a professional fisherman, it is such dumb advice. But for some reason, they do it. And maybe they're humbled and dejected. Um, the one thing they really know how to do on their own without help from anybody is catch fish. They were catching fish before they met Jesus. They're good at catching fish. And yet they spend all night fishing and catch nothing. So maybe just to shut the guy on the beach up, they cast the net on the other side of the boat. And they catch so many fish, they can't even pull the net in. John, our insightful, reflective disciple, recognizes immediately it's the Lord. You know, this has happened before. John doesn't tell us about this in this gospel, but it's a well-known story. Everybody knows the story. When the disciples first met Jesus, the same thing happened. They were out fishing, and, and Jesus said, cast the net on the other side of the boat, and they all knew it was Jesus when he said it, and they, they did it because Jesus said to do it, and then they caught a ton of fish. And then Jesus told them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Well, three years into the journey, after the terrifying and disorienting experience of the arrest and crucifixion, Jesus reminds them of their purpose. This is Jesus saying to them, I told you that you would be fishers of men. I told you that you would be fruitful. I told you that apart from me, you can do nothing. Peter, our action-oriented disciple, dives into the sea. He's not going to wait for the overburdened boat to struggle back to land. He swims to his Lord. And when he gets there, Jesus has breakfast ready. Verses 9 through 14. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? 
knowing that it was the Lord, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's not unusual for me to be asked when I'm teaching the Gospel of John about the significance of the number 153 fish. And we can come at that from several different levels. On the first level, the number simply draws us into a story that is real. Real detail makes you feel like it's a real story. And the right kind of fisherman is surely going to count the number of fish in a haul too big to pull into the boat. You know, he's, we were out there and we caught nothing. And he said, cast the net on the other side. And we hauled in 153 fish. You're, you're going to count it to tell the story. So on one level, this is just real. On a second level, the number of fish emphasizes the truth that we're the branches and Jesus is the vine. If the disciples are to be fishers of men, fruitfulness for them will depend not primarily on their knowledge or their skills or their hard work, but on Jesus. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Abiding in him, we can become fruitful in our labor to the glory of God. There may be another level of importance to the numbers. It's 153 is a triangular number. Uh, you can Google that if you want to know what that means. Um, but it's the kind of number that numbers people notice. Math people, people who like symbolic numbers, would, would look at 153 and it would click that, oh, this is one of those numbers. Augustine noticed it. I've, I've read a couple of interesting papers on possible symbolism from the number. Scholars come up with several different ideas on, on what the underlying symbolism might mean. But, that, but that's sort of a problem. When, when people have all these different ideas, then it's, it's hard to teach what the symbolism really is because they're, they're different options. When numerical symbolism shows up in a biblical story, the point is always going to be to support the story, uh, not to convey hidden meaning. If you're looking for hidden meaning in the numbers of the Bible, then that's, that's conspiracy theory that, that really you can make numbers show up and you can make them mean what you want them to mean, and that's, that's not biblical truth being communicated. When there, when there are s- symbolic numbers, like when the f- number 40 becomes symbolic or 10 is symbolic or 7 is symbolic, these are teaching us about the perfection of God. Or you know, If Jesus says, how, Peter says, how much should I forgive somebody? Should I forgive them seven times? Well, seven's a perfect number. So Peter thinks he's pretty gracious saying, should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Well, that, that's seven times times seven. That's not only perfection, but an overabundance. You should be very ready to forgive people. And so if you, if you think about the numbers, the numbers add to the story. So what, whatever this number means, if it has symbolism, it's not something hidden that you should be searching for. It, it's, it's most important that you have the main idea down. And whatever meaning it has, it's not going to detract from the stories. So, so we can just focus on the story that's more apparent, that this number makes the story real and, and the fruitfulness. So let's not get sidetracked by trying to go through what are the potential symbolisms of, of the number. Let's just take it as a huge haul of fish that reminds us that we're not going to be fruitful in ministry apart from Jesus, but with Jesus, we can do some great things. Jesus set up a second scene after the 
the miraculous catch of fish. It's a breakfast scene, a fellowship meal. And these disciples are to be fruitful fishers of men, but we need to talk about something. What happens when they fail? And I'm not talking about the failure to catch fish. It's it's not just when we try to do good things and we we fail. What happens when they they sin or they fail to be faithful, that kind of failure? We're sinful men and women, and we're on a journey with Jesus, and he's holy and perfect. He's fully committed to the will of God, and we're just so, so committed to the will of God. He's our King and Lord. What happens when we break trust with him? Is there a way back fully into his grace? Or are we set aside as marred, um, not so useful, a, a, a disappointment to our Heavenly Father? Jesus invites all the disciples to sit down to breakfast. He invites them into this fellowship meal. and There is a detail to this meal that is aimed specifically at Peter. When they come up to Jesus, you know, John writes that they saw a charcoal fire with fish laid on it. A charcoal fire. That's an interesting detail. You know, why does John point that out? A charcoal fire has only been mentioned one other time in this gospel. Do, do you remember where that was? Does that strike any memory for you? Where was there a charcoal fire? When Peter entered the courtyard of the high priest after the arrest of Jesus, and he was asked whether he too was a disciple of Jesus, he saw a bunch of slaves and officers standing around a charcoal fire warming themselves, and he answered the question, I am not. Then he went over to that fire and he joined the circle, And before the rooster crowed, he denied Jesus two more times as he warmed himself by a charcoal fire. And you know how smell can take you right back to a a time and a place in your memory? I I think in the fall, when the leaves start coming down, there's a specific smell, and and, and I'm I'm thinking of high school football games, and it it just takes me right back to those, those memories. Jesus Jesus has created a charcoal fire, and he's asked Peter to sit with him in a circle with other men. Uh, this is a place of fellowship, but it is also a place of remembrance. Jesus is calling up the memory of Peter's greatest failure, his greatest shame. Why would Jesus do that? You know, different human leaders bring out our failures for different reasons. A leader might point out your failure to shame you into better behavior. You know, parents do this, teachers do this, pastors do this. And, and that's often how we picture God. You know, if, even we wouldn't say it that way, we, we feel it inside. That we use our failure to provide a negative motivation for us. You know, we say it to ourselves in different ways depending on our personality. But it's something like, come on, Michael, what kind of a Christian are you? What, look how you've screwed up. You, you can be better than that. Do better. Be better, Michael. Come on. Yeah, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's not shaming Peter to motivate Peter. This is not shaming. Jesus set, up, Jesus set up this scene around a charcoal fire to restore Peter. Let's read verses 15 to 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. What's going on here? I've heard a few sermons that focus on the different words for love that are used in the Greek. I don't think that in this instance, the difference between agapao and phileo is the main point. John does not reserve agape as a special type of God love, unconditional love. Now, both Greek words are used to describe the father's love for the son in John's gospel. Um, John even uses both words when he's giving his self-designation of the disciple whom Jesus loved. He might use agape, and in some places he uses phileo. John uses them more as synonyms, and John enjoys using synonyms. In fact, just in this one passage, we have two words for love, two words for knowledge, two words for the verb of, of caring for the sheep, and two words for the sheep. Rather than focus on the two words for love and and some technical difference between those two words, I think it's better to focus on how this interaction is an example of Jesus' love for Peter. Now, what is Jesus doing here? How is he loving Peter? And it's going to be it's going to be tough love, you know, like the pain of a doctor washing out a deep wound or resetting a bone. Jesus is going to cause pain in order to heal. Jesus is giving emphasis to the denial, the three times that Peter denied Jesus. And this is a painful memory. One of the reasons for for the painfulness of this restoration is the public nature of the denial. Peter's denial of Jesus was public in front of a group gathered around a charcoal fire. That public denial brought shame onto Peter. Now, Jesus is now affirming Peter publicly in front of a group around a charcoal fire, uh, in order to restore his honor. So the pain is necessary. We can view Peter's failure through both an honor-shame lens and also an innocence-guilt lens. Both ideas are at play in whatever society we live in, though one society might lean more strongly to one side and another more strongly to another. So Western morality tends to focus on law-breaking. If you break a moral law as an individual... You are guilty of breaking that law, and you feel you're a bad person because you broke a moral law. Justice demands from you some kind of punishment or penance in order that you feel better about yourself. In Eastern cultures, morality commonly takes on more of an honor-shame bent, which relates more to the group. When you fail to uphold your obligations to the, the group, then socially you become an unfaithful person. That's how people see you. And that creates a sense of shame in you. You feel you are a bad person because you failed to uphold the obligations recognized by society. And Peter has failed here on both accounts. You know, denying Jesus, he broke the greatest commandment of all to love God with his heart and mind and strength. He is guilty of lawbreaking. Denying Jesus, he's also shown himself unfaithful to his master and to the whole community of believers. He is shamed as an unfaithful disciple. As a Jew with a strong sense of moral obligation, who lives in an honor-shame society, I assume Peter would have felt both shame 
in his relationship to society and guilt in his own internal understanding of moral law. You know, he's got both going on. I also assume that we're all affected by both, that we judge our moral worth according to the sense of approval in our group. And that's more of an honor-shame perspective. You feel shamed because of how people view you. You feel like you've somehow failed socially or failed the community. We also judge our moral worth according to our ability to keep moral rules. And that's more of an innocence guilt perspective. This is internal standard conscience that you're struggling with. Our upbringing and culture affect how strongly one of these perspectives may play out in our lives. So one may be stronger than the other, but we all deal to some degree with both. Now, we don't know if Peter had discussed his denial of Jesus privately during one of the previous times Jesus appeared to the disciples. Maybe they were all together. You know how you can all be together in a, in a group when Jesus shows up and it becomes difficult to talk about personal individual things. So maybe Peter hasn't had a chance to, to confess to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. It's not recorded, so we have no way of knowing whether Peter had uh, had this conversation with Jesus yet in a private way. Here, Jesus is the one taking the initiative to restore Peter, and it's going to be both, both as an individual and also as a member of a community. Now, as the denial was public before a gathered group and had become known, so too the restoration is public before a gathered group. And the restoration began this way. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. This cycle is repeated three times. Jesus will ask the question, do you love me? Peter will respond, yes, you know I do. And Jesus will charge him, tend my lamb, or shepherd my sheep. In each of these three cycles, the, the phrases are all pretty much synonymous. Jesus asks the same question. Peter gives the same response. Jesus delivers the same charge. There are two slight additions to the language, and the first is here in the original question. Jesus doesn't just ask, do you love me? He asks, do you love me more than these? That's an interesting question. Do you love me more than these? That's a question I would never ask one of my daughters. Julia, do you love me more than Anna? Do you love me more than Claire? You know, why would I ask that? Why would I encourage that kind of competition among my daughters? Why would I want that? So why does Jesus ask that here of Peter? Does Jesus want us to think of ourselves in competition with each other to try to outdo proving to God which one of us loves him more? No, that that is not what Jesus is doing. The question is rhetorical. The question is, is getting at, at how Peter might see himself. Peter, do you really see yourself as loving me more than these other men love me, more than John, more than Nathaniel, more than Thomas? Is that how you view yourself, Peter? Did I choose you as a leader among the 12 because you are better than they are? And of course, we, we all know that we're not supposed to feel that way, but and yet whenever we have some kind of honor or position over other people, we feel that way. We, we somehow feel that we are, we're chosen, selected, because we're, we're better. We're smarter, we're more faithful, we, we love more. But the question takes Peter back to the night of the arrest. 
when Jesus was speaking to the disciples just after the Last Supper, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Peter had spoken out in front of all the disciples this vow that he, Peter, whatever else all these other guys do, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. That is how much I love you. Does he see himself as loving Jesus more than the others? Does he see himself as somehow better or, or more favored? Because he's, you know, he's the out one, the impulsive one, the active one. Does he somehow feel that means that he, he loves Jesus more deeply than maybe the more reflected John? And just because you're, you're extroverted and you're out there, do, do you think of yourself as better than those who are more introverted, reflective, and quiet? Or if you're more introverted, reflective, and quiet, do you think of yourself as better than the more impulsive Peters? You know, does God give you gifts or favor or position or opportunity or fruitfulness because you're better than other Christians, because you love more? You know, maybe Peter thought that before. I don't think he's thinking that at this moment, sitting across from Jesus with this group of men. You know, Maybe in chapter 6, when he was the one that said, where are we going to go? You are the Holy One with the words of life. You know, he was the one who spoke out when everybody left, and that was a high point, and maybe he felt better then, but now he's the one who denied. You know, apart from Judas, he's the worst. And Peter doesn't answer, yes, Lord, I love you more than these. You know, he doesn't frame his love in comparison with the others. So maybe he's learned his lesson because he simply responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus commissions him. Peter, tend my lambs. Jesus accepts Peter's profession of love, and then he gives him responsibility. You know, that means so much. When you fail, and then your leader, your leader's not, he's not trying to shame Peter. He's giving Peter opportunity to, to state his heart, and then he's giving Peter responsibility. Three times Jesus asks, Peter responds, Jesus commissions. Why three times? Is Jesus requiring Peter to pay penance for his sin? You know, you deny me three times to make up for it. You have to um, confess me three times. No, no. This is because Peter needs his wound washed away. This is not a payment of sin. This is not to satisfy the anger of God. Jesus is not punishing Peter. Jesus took the punishment for that denial on the cross. Jesus took the punishment. This is something Peter needs. Peter needs to be able to proclaim his love for Jesus three times. Jesus is giving him the opportunity to reject his denials. Jesus is allowing him to say, I know you love me, Peter. I'm just, I'm going to get you to say it. So we're good with each other. Three times is powerful for Peter. And Jesus is giving the gift of restoration. Jesus is enabling Peter to feel restored in relationship. Sometimes we, just, we need to say it out loud, and we need the other person to hear us say it out loud. And we need to see them smile at us. Peter's shame was public. The restoration is public. 
You know, Jesus honors Peter here three times in front of these other men. If they're wondering, you know, is, is, is Peter set aside? Is somebody else going to lead now? No, not only does Peter know he's forgiven, they know he's forgiven. Not only forgiven, but restored. And, and sometimes this kind of public restoration needs to happen, and it's painful, and we don't like conflict, so we don't do it. But then the wound doesn't get fully cleaned out. This, this was public sin by a leader. That wound needed, we need to clear this out. And it mean, needs to be done with, with the others who are involved. The wound is still going to smart. This hurts, and it's going to continue to hurt after this conversation. Peter is going to continue, I imagine, to regret his denial and his failure and to wish that it, it, I wish I had never done that. But even though it's still smart, it's now clean, and it is well-bandaged, and it will heal in time. Jesus has forgiven Peter's guilt. He has restored Peter's honor. Peter can see himself as, as good in the eyes of Jesus, as valuable, because Jesus sees him that way. He sees him as good and valuable. He sees him as a guy who can tend his sheep. And Peter, Peter can say that. Jesus sees me as somebody who has something to offer. Earlier, Jesus declared, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But this interaction assures us that Jesus, Jesus understands this is messy for us. Jesus knows that even if we love him as Peter loved him, we are still going to struggle to obey. We love, but that love is countered by other motivations, by selfishness, by fear, by lust. There will be times that we choose sin over obedience. Does that mean that we never love Jesus or don't love him at all? You know, at those times, we will be loving something else more than Jesus. That doesn't mean that we, we don't love Jesus or haven't loved Jesus. It means that there's, there's a competition for our affection. It means we love Jesus incompletely, weakly, not exclusively, and it's messy. We have begun a journey that is changing us, but we are not going to be complete until the end of that journey, until we're glorified and made whole in heaven. Jesus is not looking for an opportunity to cast us away when we fail. Jesus understands that, that failure um, can be used for growth, that sin can be turned into a learning moment. And he, he has made a way to forgive that as holy God so that the, the penalty, the guilt, doesn't have to remain on us so that we can get up and move forward and grow. That's the great tragedy of Judas. You know, like Peter, Judas came to regret his unfaithfulness towards Jesus. He took the money back. He, wanted, he tried to give it back, but he didn't know what to do with his guilt and shame. He didn't come back to Jesus. He didn't know he could. He didn't know Jesus well enough. And not knowing Jesus, he became one without hope. Overwhelmed by despair, he hung himself. And as low as Peter got, Peter knew enough to hold on to Jesus. Peter came back to the community of disciples. And as a result, he experienced the restoring power of the love of Jesus. I wonder if Peter had this experience of, of Jesus meeting with him over this, this breakfast, over this fire. I wonder if he had that in mind when he wrote 1 Peter 4, 8. And he told the, he told the sheep, the, the flock of Jesus, he told them, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter 4 8. 
Peter knew what it meant for love to cover over a multitude of sin. Jesus' love covered his denials. Jesus' love, it, it covers our sin on the cross. That, the love of Jesus in a, in a theological, spiritual, justice way, it, it covers our sin. Um, but the love of Jesus also can cover our sin in a concrete, specific interaction. This is a human covering over of sin. When we treat people honorably and, and with respect and with, with kindness and grace after they fail, that has the potential to cover over sin, the pain of sin and the fruit of sin and ongoing sin. Um, love is a powerful restorative. Even when our theology teaches us that we're forgiven and loved, we need reminders. We need human voices, human interaction. We need other people to remind us that we're loved and that we're forgiven and that we have so much to offer even after we fail. That is the truth about you. Failure is not an end. Sin is not an end. It's an an opportunity to get up and to learn more about who you are and more about who your gracious Savior is. And through those wounds, maybe become more compassionate and more insightful in your, your ability to care for other people. Jesus went to extra effort to show Peter honor in front of the other disciples. He could have shamed Peter. He could have wagged his head, narrowed his eyes, spoken to him sternly. He could have set Peter off to the side, giving his position to another disciple. Instead, Jesus took the time to create a scene that would allow Peter to be restored. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we... If we could learn to restore like Jesus restores, love covers over a multitude of sin. Peter knew what that felt like. He got it from Jesus. He sought to live it out himself, and he exhorts us to do the same. There is one more lesson here that Jesus wants to drive home. Let's read verses 18 to 23, and this is Jesus talking directly to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger... You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Jesus has gone on here to give Peter some very difficult information. He tells him how he will die. It's difficult to hear on the one hand, and yet oddly affirming on the other. Peter had declared his willingness to die for Jesus. You you remember that. That was the night of the red. I'll die for you. And he failed, epically, proving unfaithful. Now, immediately after being restored, Jesus informs him, and by the way, you will grow to be the kind of person you wished to be. You will be courageous enough to go to death for me. You will be faithful. You will stretch out your hands in that death just as I stretched out mine. Your time will come to lay down your life for me. But you've got a lot to do before then. You must first lay down your life in daily service to my flock. 
And then Jesus ends it with this just direct commission, follow me. Then Peter does what we always do. Jesus said, follow me. And he looked around and spotted John and asked, what about him? We are so driven to compare. Jesus had just warned Peter of that danger when he asked, do you love me more than these? And there are two lessons about comparison here. Do not define your value through comparison with other people. And that's, the, that's what we already addressed. You don't, it's not, I love you more than he loves you. It's, yes, Lord, I love you. And now the lesson here, do not judge your journey in comparison to the journeys of other people. Now, we each have our own race to run. And you can learn from the journeys of other people. You can gain wisdom and you can gain insight into your own experience. And that's what we're doing right now, that we're, we're looking at Peter's journey and we're learning things, but we're not going to have the same experience as Peter. God takes each one of us on different paths. You, know, you might suffer a lot more on your path, on your journey, than somebody else, than another brother or sister in Christ. And that doesn't mean you're more approved by God nor does it mean you're more judged by God. You're running the race that God has marked out for you. And don't try to determine whether it is fair or not. It is certainly not fair in any human sense of the idea. I know it's not fair. I was born with the family, with the parents I was born with. That is not fair. We're always going to have more than somebody else, depending on who we compare ourselves to, or less than somebody else, depending on who we compare ourselves to. Fairness is such a a human way of looking at things. Our, Our path is not fair because God is not fair in the human sense, not in the sense of giving everybody the same. But what God is, is, is good. He is always good, and he is always just, and he is always loving. Do not seek to understand your journey in comparison to others. You seek to understand God on your journey, to to hold on to the truth that God is good and God loves me, no matter how hard or dark things might get. So when, when Peter tries to compare himself to John, Jesus turns Peter's eyes back to himself. Don't be looking at all the other brothers and sisters and judging fairness or not fairness, or or, or saying, I'm more worthy or I'm less worthy. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Can you hear Jesus saying that to you? So stop, stop looking around at everybody else. You follow me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And run the race he has marked out for you. The gospel ends with verses 24 to 25. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John lived a full life for Jesus. And before his life ended, after years of preaching the good news of Jesus, he wrote down his witness to exhort us to believe in Jesus and live. And there's one, I want to end with this one little aspect of his witness that I have not addressed through the series, which is why did John call himself throughout the disciple whom Jesus 
loved. I did explain that he didn't name himself as the author because he doesn't want his witness to be his own biography. His testimony is not about him. His testimony is about Jesus. But I didn't talk about why did he choose to describe himself this way? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Did John sense that Jesus loved him more than these others? If Jesus had asked him the question, he asked Peter, John, do you love me more than these? Would John say, well, yes, Lord, (laughs) you love me more. I'm the one you love. And there's probably a little problem with the article, the the article in Greek that comes across stronger in English. He's the disciple Jesus loved. And that throws us off a bit because that's not what John is saying. And, And we've seen here Jesus reject that kind of comparison. Jesus wants each one of us to see himself or herself according to their relationship with the Father and the Son. And that's what John is doing. He's simply saying, I am one who is loved. That's what I am. I am the disciple that Jesus loves. And he doesn't mean for us to make it exclusive to John. He's not the only disciple Jesus loved. This is who I am. I'm a disciple loved by Jesus. And I think that John wants for each one of us to be able to brace that entitle ourselves. That we would come to know Jesus and we would come to know ourselves. Who is Jesus? The Son of God, the Savior of the world. Who am I? I'm the disciple Jesus loves. Do those words express your convictions? Can you say that from your heart? Who is Jesus? The Son of God, the Savior of the world. And who am I? I am the disciple who Jesus loves. That is who I am. I am one who is loved. We end here our series, Interpreting the Gospel of John. This is my third series. My first was Interpreting Romans. My second was Interpreting the Pentateuch. Both of those series are available at ObserveTheWord.com or through iTunes or Podbean or whatever app you use for podcast listening. Just search or scroll to the earlier lessons. Thank you for joining me in this study of John. May God the Father bless you as you walk with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the fellowship of believers. To his glory. Amen. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Gospel of John, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.